young man from the flatlands of Lincolnshire, the ravine was something else. The ravine was a mighty fissure of the rock, and down at the base, greyness and hard to see because of the camouflage paint, was the broken fuselage of an MI-24 helicopter. Close to the helicopter shell were white scrapes on the rock and black scorch squares. Joey Dickens recognized the signs of high-explosive bombs and napalm canisters that had been dropped into the ravine to destroy what remained of the helicopter, but which had failed to do their work. They parted from the caravan, left their guide on the path, and edged their way down a steep gully to the floor of the ravine. The waiting in Pakistan for a helicopter carcass to be identified and located was forgotten. Joey's difficulties of communicating with the Flash, Charlie, and the small-talk Eddie were obliterated. The worst job had been the first— disentangling the bloated and grotesque grown body of the pilot. Even in the cooler depth of the ravine, the stench was suffocating. Joey had been violently, shudderingly sick, and Eddie made a litter from a door panel and carried the body out of sight before he picked its pockets. And then, for half a day, armed with a screwdriver and a wrench and a set of spanners, Joey had worked at the in-flight computer and the radar and the guidance systems. Each item he took from the helicopter he annotated in a jotting book. They had climbed with their loads to the top of the ravine. They had seen the guide who sat in the shade of a rockfall waiting for them, and they had seen that on that mule that had been left for them were now fastened two wicker litters. They had seen the men who were pale from wounds who lay on the litters, and the protest had died in Charlie's mouth, and the guide had pointed to the ground and scratched the shape of a butterfly's wings and Joey Dickens had known that two men had detonated the butterfly-shaped anti-personnel mines that were scattered from the sky. In their own backpacks, Joey Dickens and Charlie and Eddie would carry the working parts of the MI-24 helicopter. That evening, on the bivouac beside the goat path, the diarrhea snapped in the stomach of Joey Dickens. He had taken the pills, but he had ignored the food. Two days back from the ravine, and the lack of food and the work of the pills had finally clamped to a halt the movement in his belly. But two days of walking in the terrible heat without the sustenance of food had drained away his strength. Each succeeding day was harder. On the fifth day, the speed of the little group was increasing. One of the wounded men had his legs severed above the knee, and the other had his intestines bound into the ripped stomach wall with old cloth and unless they hurried, the men would die. Charlie and Eddie were friends and could lift each other with their talk and their laughter. Sometimes, before they rested, Joey Dickens was a long way behind, and his feet were an agony of blisters. Across the southern slopes of the Hindu Kush, a group does not slow for a straggler. His boots gnawed at his heels and toes, his muscles ached, his belly ground in sweet pain, his breath gasped in the rarefied altitude. The glare of the sun beat into his eyes from the rock surface as he followed the group up the shallow file of a dried riverbed. Sometimes he heard the banter of Charlie and Eddie, sometimes he heard the curse of the guide and the welt of a stick on the mule's back. Sometimes he heard the cry of a maimed man as the pain lurched in his body. Sometimes he heard only the leaden scrape of his own boots. He did not hear the helicopters, He wondered why he had come, and he thought of the terraced house that was five miles from the base at Caldrose. 
and he thought of the pinched feet of his elder girl that would have stayed pinched for another month. If he had stopped, if he had stood completely still, then he might have heard the engines of the helicopters. Joey Dickens was three hundred yards behind the others. The straps of his pack bit down into his shoulders. Christ, if he'd known he was going to have to carry the stuff, he wouldn't have been so bleeding keen to strip it out of the whirly. He glanced from his footfall to his wristwatch. In twenty minutes they would stop for water. The stops were regular. When they stopped, he would catch up. And by nightfall, by the creeping of the dusk across the mountain sides, they would be across the frontier. This would be a dream, a time of delirium. Within moments of crossing that undrawn frontier, a cairn of stones, it would all have been a bad dream. Past the cairn, into Pakistan, six hours in a taxi to Dean's in Peshawar, a day of hotel baths and hotel food, and four hours in a taxi to Rawalpindi.